Time for you to be the asset. everyone and welcome to season two episode 36 of the real spies real lives podcast where we talk about writing spies and writing about spies i'm your host espionage author p.a duncan today i'm going to read some more from my first collection of espionage stories about my fisher and Alexei Bukharin, entitled Blood Vengeance. This week, I'm focusing on the first story that references a mission Mai had in the mid-1980s, where she was undercover in the IRA. This story, which takes place in late 1998, is titled A Father's No Shield for His Child. That's a line from... I believe, a Seamus Heaney poem, Elegy. Appropriate for a story that takes place mostly in Ireland, since Heaney was an Irish Nobel Prize winner for literature, and people of Irish descent everywhere celebrated in 1995 when that happened. And this story also features a secondary character from both the a Perfect Hatred series, and my first novel, A War of Deception, and that's Secret Service Agent Hank Monroe. This is a story where he's front and center, and if you don't remember, he has a little bit of a crush on Mai. This is also a story in a time period where Mai and Alexei are at a pretty serious crossroads in their relationship. He is set on retiring from the spy game, but Mai isn't quite ready. Without consulting her, he takes a job at the International War Crimes Tribunal, and Mai, well, she's not taking well to being a Dutch housefrau. So she cuts a deal with Nelson, to do a lot of work in the Balkans, alone. She and Alexei aren't exactly separated, but they kind of are. A Father's No Shield for His Child Washington, D.C., 1998 To keep warm in the chill November air, William Henry Monroe paced. A drizzle fell, and though his overcoat was warm and waterproof, his head was bare. The tips of his ears were uncomfortably cold, and, he suspected, as red as his chapped cheeks. At forty-two, he was of an age where a man started to get vain about his looks, worried about his hair, concerned about his weight. But Monroe had a thick head of hair, salt and pepper in color, cut conservatively. His work demanded he stay lean and fit. A few women he dated had called him attractive, never handsome, and he couldn't judge for himself. 
His northern European skin, sensitive to extremes of cold and heat, had always vexed him. He was sure he'd look like he'd been on a 24-hour drunk. On a day like today, in addition to the ruddiness, his nose would run like a faucet. On cue, it did. He reached for his handkerchief to keep his upper lip from embarrassment and glanced around, his eyes seeking. The dismal day hadn't deterred tourists from the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. Only a few days away from Veterans Day, there were already lots of commemorative events. People arrived early, had impromptu reunions, and placed their remembrances at the wall of black granite etched with names from another generation. Monroe had missed out on Vietnam, his birth date making him eligible for the lottery, not the draft, and he'd drawn a high number. He'd been in college in 1975 when the U.S. retreated from Saigon, and he was among that group of baby boomers who had never entered military service because it wasn't mandatory. He had weathered the derision of the vets at his workplace, who deemed him incapable of being a Secret Service agent because he hadn't fought Charlie. He'd been an agent for more than 20 years now. He got all the promotions exactly when they should have come, the old guys had retired, and the Secret Service itself was now more reflective of America. That was a good thing, even if a few holdovers from the good old days thought otherwise. The breeze picked up and chilled him even more. He waited for a woman, one who'd said she'd meet him between 1300 and 1330, right here at the Vietnam Women's Memorial on the high ground above the black slash in the earth that was the wall. He checked his watch. 1326. Monroe began his scan again, his impatience rising. His training made him push it down, but that was becoming harder as the minutes ticked past. He glanced down at the crepe paper poppy she'd told him to purchase from a vendor so she'd recognize him, or any of the couple hundred other people wearing one. Also because of his training, a movement caught his attention and he focused on a woman striding toward him from the direction of the Washington Monument. He took a moment to admire the swing of her hips and studied the rest of her. Clad all in black, down to a supple, leather trench coat worn unbelted, she had donned sunglasses on the overcast day. She wore her hair loose, unlike when he'd seen her before, and as she neared Monroe, he saw... She was little changed in four years. Her dark hair had two gray streaks, one at each temple. But Monroe thought it a striking feature, so striking he wondered if she wore them uncolored on purpose. Yet Monroe remembered her as unassuming about her appearance, and he decided having the gray streaks so prominent meant she didn't care how they looked. He saw the firm set of her mouth and was disconcerted because he couldn't read her eyes behind the sunglasses. As a Secret Service agent, he hated not being able to see a subject's eyes. She turned a few heads other than his on her trek 
and he had been so absorbed in watching, he didn't realize she had stopped a few feet away. Monroe recovered and extended his right hand. Miss Fisher, good to see you again. She shook his hand but said nothing. I was the Secret Service agent. Yes, she said. In Kansas City. You were a little fresh. He smiled and flushed. Yes, I was. I didn't know you were married at the time. Why am I here, Agent Monroe? Monroe took a moment to relish the high-class British accent. Please, call me Hank. Miss Fisher, may we go somewhere to talk? We are somewhere, Agent Monroe, and until I know why the Secret Service wants to talk to me, I prefer us right here. Monroe fidgeted, his composure threatening to leave him. He needed to approach her the right way and not resort to begging before the small talk was over. He saw her brow crease above the sunglasses. It's probably best to talk somewhere a little more private, he said. If this is about President Randolph's secretary scandal, she said, not only do I know absolutely nothing, I can't be compelled to testify about it. Monroe flushed again. No, it's nothing to do with that. The Secret Service doesn't want to talk to you. I do. This isn't official. No. My director indicated I was needed for a national security matter. I'm um, afraid I may have used some agency resources for a personal matter. The president's personal matters are no concern of mine. It's not the president's personal matters. Mr. Monroe, you need to start explaining why I got called away from the Balkans, through official channels, by the way, for someone's personal matter. Look, I wouldn't have gone through official channels, but when I asked around the intelligence community on how to contact you, they were pretty mum. That's because we're spies. You've got two more minutes of my time, Mr. Monroe. I feel exposed here. I would rather speak somewhere more private. Two minutes, Miss Fisher, please. I used channels because it was the only way I could be assured I could speak to you. About what? A personal matter, one I'd rather discuss in private. When you talk in circles, you forfeit your time. Good day. She turned, but before she took two steps, Monroe found his voice. He said, Eamon Kilkenny. She whirled back, closing until she was in his face. The coal finally got to him, and he shivered. When she took off her sunglasses, he saw a mixture of emotions in her eyes, mostly suspicion. She spoke in what sounded like Russian and looked around her. She turned back to him. See the man in the gray coat, she asked, nodding toward her left. Monroe looked around and saw a man standing maybe 50 feet away. He spoke into a wrist mic. When he saw Monroe looking at him, he nodded. Friend of yours, he asked Mai. 
My husband's nephew, later the Spetsnaz, currently assigned as my bodyguard, if he receives the agreed-upon signal from me, you're a dead man. Christ, what do you think I want with you? Well, I don't know that, do I, since you haven't told me what you want. Well, why do you have a bodyguard? There are quite a few Serbian generals and politicians under indictment for war crimes because of me. Recently, in Zagreb, there was an attempt. Attempt, as in, to kill you? She raised an eyebrow in answer. You okay? Quite well, thank you. Hence, the bodyguard. My husband now works at The Hague, and he worries needlessly about me. What did you call him? Spats? Spetsnaz. Formerly the Soviet Special Forces. There were two kinds. Shock troops and assassins. Which one is he? Shock troop, but he's very talented. Oh. Well, I'm not on some Serbian general's payroll. He forced a smile, but she didn't respond. Let's stroll, Mr. Monroe, so we don't attract undue attention. He fell in beside her, and they began to walk. You mentioned Eamon Kilkine, she said, giving his name its Gaelic pronunciation. That's a name I haven't heard in a very long time. I'm curious why you mentioned an IRA hitman to me. I'm Irish. So claims 90% of Americans with a vaguely Irish surname. No, I am Irish. Was Irish. I was born there. My parents came to America when I was two and became citizens. So you're Eamon's long-lost cousin and he's hit you up for money or guns? No. Well, Mr. Monroe, I'm Irish too. Now that we have that in common, I'd like to know how you know Kilkenny. You're saying his name differently. You Americanized it. Kilkenny. I pronounced it in Gaelic. Accent on a different syllable. Tell me why you mentioned his name to me. He kidnapped a U.S. citizen in Ireland and he contacted me. Well, you want your brothers in the FBI. I'm aware of that. Have you contacted them? No. Well, why the hell not? Kilkenny said he would kill the person if I did. Fisher shook her head in disbelief. You've been a federal law enforcement officer for what, 15, 20 years? 22. And you fell for that. You don't understand. No, I don't. And I'm losing patience, waiting for you to explain it. Kilkenny suggested I contact you. My last dealings with Kilkenny were more than 13 years ago, and I haven't worked Ireland since. Not even the Omar bombing. Besides, Kilkenny didn't know me as my fisher. The person he thought I was is dead. He said, tell her. I found out she survived Lifford. Mai stopped walking, her eyes staring ahead at nothing. Fuck, she murmured. She turned around, held a hand up to Kolya, and her eyes came back to Monroe. All right, I know the kidnapped person isn't anyone in my family. If it were the president's daughter, that would be all over the news. Since it's not anyone important to me, I'm still not sure why I'm here. No, the person doesn't matter to you. She matters to me. 
Mai gave a throaty laugh and motioned for them to walk again. <laughs> what was it? An exchange program with the Garda, and you met a little piece over in Ireland you had to have? Now someone's claiming she's kidnapped to get something from you. If you'd let me finish, open your eyes, Monroe. You've been had. They knew you were from the Secret Service, so they knew you'd had the means to contact someone in the intelligence community. I'm not playing the IRA's game, and neither should you. Give the President my regards. I'll forego mentioning this to my director. She turned to go, but Monroe put a hand on her arm. They stood facing each other again. Please, let me finish, he said. The woman's not a piece I had. I'm trying to explain. It's difficult to find the words. This is beyond my control. Something I couldn't go to my superiors about. I know I should have. That's how I was trained. But I couldn't react as a secret service agent because I had to act as a... Emotion stopped him again. She peered into his face, her expression softening. Monroe, get on with it. Monroe swallowed and found his voice. I have to act as a father. Okay, that's sufficiently cryptic place to stop, take a break, and of course, do a little commercial. The ebooks of my two earliest short story collections, Blood Vengeance and The Better Spy, are 99 cents for all of September. And you can find them at Amazon.com slash author slash Phyllis Duncan. As I said last time, Blood Vengeance contains some of the earliest stories about Mai Fisher, Alexei Bukharin, and the Directorate. Blood Vengeance only has five stories. But the one I'm reading from, A Father's No Shield for His Child, is the longest. It's almost novelette length, so around 10,000 words. There is a significant anniversary coming up. On Saturday will be the 20th anniversary of the terror attacks on September 11, 2001. It's one of those events where, despite the amount of time that's passed, it still feels like it happened yesterday. It certainly does for me. At the time, I worked at the U.S. Federal Aviation Administration. And someday, I'll talk about what I had to do. Perhaps. I still can't watch a movie or a documentary about it. However, I did write a short story about some people who survived the collapse of Number 2 World Trade Center and were rescued. I think at the time, I had to have a story where someone survived. Because at the time, I subscribed to the New York Times. And every day, as they found and identified people who had died that day, they had a short bio of them published in the paper. And it just seemed overwhelming to me, practically impossible for someone to have survived. And because it was so depressing, I needed a story where someone did. 
And that did happen. Some people did survive and were rescued on that day, but not many. So it wasn't only in my fictional account. That short story eventually became a novel. The novel became two novels and finally a trilogy, book one of which will appear sometime in 2022. Enough time has passed that the Justice Department is now starting to review some of the classified documents regarding 9-11 and its leading up to it and its aftermath. And it's quite possible I could say more about it. However, even if what I was involved with is declassified, it'll remain to be seen if I can bring myself to discuss it. There is one series I did watch a couple of years ago on Hulu. It's called The Looming Tower, and I managed to get through it because up until the final episode, it is mostly about gathering intelligence, and it's a good study of that. The events of 9-11 are left to the very end of the series, and even then it wasn't exploitative. There wasn't a lot of sensationalized bits to it, but it was emotionally devastating because we all know what's going to happen. I recommend that series, particularly if you're interested in understanding how we gathered intelligence that should have led us to be able to prevent 9-11. But as with all humant or human intelligence, there were some missing pieces and some that were ignored. All right, let's wrap up today's podcast with another reading from A Father's No Shield for His Child. And because it's a long story and I skipped a little far ahead, I'll fill in a few blanks. Monroe and Mai have succeeded in capturing Eamon Kilkenny and have taken him to a safe house in Sligo, Ireland for interrogation. Mai has an end game in mind, but of course she hasn't told Monroe what it is. And he isn't quite accustomed to her interrogation techniques. A father's no shield for his child, continued. Monroe had lost track of how many hours he'd spent watching a naked, snoring Eamon Kilkenny trussed to a chair in the safe house's kitchen. Linoleum floors clean up easier, Mai had said when Monroe questioned the placement. Kilkenny showed no sign of waking, and Mai showed no sign of getting him to do so. Her pleas for patience be damned. Monroe wanted something to happen. He found Mai in the sitting room of the safe house. She had curled up on the window seat of a bay window, which showed the waters of Sligo Bay beyond, and of all things, read a book. He stood where she couldn't help but see him and waited. She turned a page with a rustle. Her eyes flicked over the pages, and she turned another. Monroe smacked the wall with a palm. Damn it, my! Oh, sorry to read so loudly, 
she said, not looking up. When he didn't respond, she dog-eared a page and stood. Now, the cliché is for you to say, how could you read a book at a time like this? Don't push me. She laughed, and he didn't like it, but right now he needed her. She held the book out to him. If Frank McCork got your daughter into her Irish roots, don't let her read any of this. Monroe took the book and looked at the cover. Selected poems of Seamus Heaney. If she reads Heaney, she'll move here, Mai said. Monroe tossed the book onto a chair. Another time. Let's get this fucking slow show on the road. You might have been born here, Monroe, but you have no concept of what it is to be from here. I wasn't idly passing the time. I was refreshing myself on how people like Kilkenny think. By reading poetry. She shrugged. Irish poetry, she said, but his expression didn't relent. All right, you're so eager. Let's get started, shall we? Monroe followed her to the kitchen, where she looked over Kilkenny's hunched body. Uh, at least he hasn't pissed himself like last night, she said. Draw some cold water, and on my signal, pour it over his head. I want you to stand off to one side, so I'm the first person he sees. And this is the protocol. I'm the interrogator. I'm the one who fulfills his needs, and only the ones I decide should be fulfilled. Got that? I've had the training. Training and experiencing are two different things. The water, please. Monroe searched the cabinets until he found a large plastic bowl, which he filled with cold tap water. After a nod from Mai, he dashed the water over Kilkenny's head and stepped back. Kilkenny coughed and sputtered, but Mai stepped in and slapped his cheeks. Look at me, Eamon. Look at me. Kilkenny blinked water from his eyes and peered up at her. Monroe wanted to knock the smile from Kilkenny's face when he set eyes on Mai. Well, well, that's herself then, the IRA man said. You look good for a corpse now, don't you? Much better than the people you betrayed. Bets and pieces they were. Tell me, did you fuck Declan the night before you killed him? No, I did that the morning of. Eamon and Mai had an exchange in Irish, far beyond Monroe's tourist phrases of please and thank you. Hey, he said, English. I want to understand what you're saying. Mai glared at Monroe, and Kilkenny smiled when he heard Monroe's voice. Ah, that would be the love and da, wouldn't it? Kilkenny turned his head toward Monroe, and Mai punched him hard on the cheek and again upside his nose. Kilkenny's head snapped sideways. He shook that head, and he spat blood on the floor. He looked at Monroe again. You're a policeman, lad. Are you going to let her beat me like that? Amen. Mai said, taking his chin and jerking his face back to hers. We're not doing good cop, bad cop. Don't look to him for help. You have his daughter, for Christ's sake. You need to worry about me. You're a slut. You know that, don't you? Mai landed the hardest blow Monroe had ever seen a woman deliver in Kilkenny's gut, and they both had to step back as he spewed vomit. Mai was back on him with punches to his head his gut, and back again. 
She stepped back, finally, shaking her right hand in pain. She went over to the sink and ran cold water over her knuckles. Monroe went to her side. What the fuck are you doing? he whispered. Mai shook her head as she let the cold water flow over her hand. Why, I'm beating the crap out of the bastard who took your daughter. You want to turn? We need to get him to talk, not beat him senseless. Monroe, you ask for my help. Don't go prissy cop on me now. If you're thinking we can reason with him, you're wrong. He has no good side we can appeal to. She held her bruised knuckles under his nose. This is one thing he understands. She drew her Beretta. This is another. Gun still out, she went back to Kilkenny. All right, Eamon, I'm sure you've noticed things aren't going the way you planned. He grinned, teeth pink from blood. Aren't they now? I'll start by shooting off your toes, one by one. Then I'll work my way up. Ankle, kneecaps, fingers, elbows. And spare me prick. My switch back to Irish. I thought I'd leave that for the father of the girl you kidnapped. Kilkenny laughed. You're a smart one, you are. You figured it out, didn't you? Then confirm it for me. And make it easy. Lover. English, goddammit, Monroe said. My turned an angry glare on him again. I will only warn you once. Shut up and let me do what I have to do. I have a right to know what you're talking about, and there'll be no shooting. Kilkenny craned his head toward Monroe again. No stomach for it, do you, lad? You know, she can beat me all she wants, and I won't talk. He turned back to Mai, speaking again in Irish. I won't talk to you in time for you to save the girl, but I'll talk to him after you finish it. Finish what? she asked in English. You know what I'm talking about. Well, save me the trouble and the bullets and explain it. I won't talk, because it doesn't matter what you do to me. I'm a dead man, cancer, four or five months to go, and that's longer than I was told to begin with. Well, I did figure that out, Eamon. I'm holding on till you die, but that innocent girl will die first, like your friends, like the man who loved you and Lifford. You can stop it right now. You die first, and I'll tell the man where his daughter is. His eyes went to her gun and back to her. My, Monroe said, we need to talk. Not now. Yes, now. Kilkenny laughed and shook his head. Ah, poor man. He's worried about his daughter, he is, and you're not helping him out. My put the barrel of Beretta neath Kilkenny's chin. My, we talk now, Monroe said. She gave him another withering look, holstered the Beretta, and strode from the kitchen to the sitting room, Monroe at her heels. He closed the door on them. I think that's going well, Mai said. Mai, he wants you to kill yourself. Well, yes, that's obvious, Monroe. When that doesn't work, he'll move on to his next ploy. Don't lose sight of what's at stake here. What am I losing sight of? You're letting him bait you, Monroe. I'm letting him think he's baiting me, and you're interfering. And by the way, I'm not killing myself. You're playing a game with my daughter's life. 
It's not my game, Monroe. It's Eamon's. He's playing with you, making you think my death will gain you Deirdre's whereabouts. He's not going to tell us, no matter what I do to him or myself. She stepped close to him and took his hand. Monroe, I've held off saying this because I needed your head in the game. What? I'm sorry, Monroe, but keeping your daughter alive was a liability for Kilkenny. The longer he kept her, the more likely she'd be found. Your daughter's probably dead, most likely, since you told Kilkenny we were on our way to Sligo. I'm sorry. Monroe's hand clenched hers like a vise. Jesus, Jesus, no, you're wrong. You can't know that. I'm sorry. I truly am, and if this was someone other than your daughter, you would have realized it yourself. No, no, we have to get him to talk. We've got to give him something. She pulled her hand from his grasp. Well, I'm not giving him the satisfaction of blowing my brains out or letting you do it for him. What? That's his next try. If I won't do it, he'll work on you. Tell you all you need to do is kill me and you get your daughter. I think I need for you to shut up right now and let me think. My shook her head. Think it through out loud. He's, he's a dying man. He'll let you beat him to a pulp, mutilate him, and he won't tell you. You know that, and now I know that. And, she prompted, he doesn't know I know that, and that means we're still one up on him. All right, what now? Now it's time for good cop, bad cop. We'll stop there because no need in giving the ending away, right? Because, of course, you can find out what happens if you buy Blood Vengeance, which is only 99 cents this month. Next week, I'll start reading from the second book I'm featuring this month, The Better Spy, which is what's called a novel in stories and has the unique construction of a reverse chronology. So we start in present day for when that book was released and we regress back to Mai's mission undercover in the IRA in Ireland in the mid-80s. So, as I remember from high school and college biology classes, viruses mutate. It's what they do. That's why we have to have a different flu shot every year because the strains from the previous year have mutated. And COVID is no different. The Delta variant is causing as many or more hospitalizations and deaths in states with low vaccination rates as occurred last year. And now we have something called the MU, MU variant to deal with. So you know what I'm going to say. Wash your hands, wear a mask or two, watch your social distancing, wait on going into a closed in place, like a bar, with a lot of people there, even though I have an event I'm supposed to go to 
this Friday, tomorrow, in a bar, but I'm wearing a mask. COVID is still killing people, and you can keep yourself from getting it or spreading it by wearing a simple cover over your face. And what a perfect way to disguise yourself when you're keeping an eye out for spies. The proceeding has been a production of Unexpected Paths Media, copyright 2021, all rights reserved. Join us next week for a new episode of the Real Spies, Real Lives podcast.